If you have your Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll continue our study since this church started three months ago. I thought it would be good to go through one of the most basic of all of Paul's 13 letters or epistles, and that's the book of Ephesians. So we've been going about a paragraph at a time through the book of Ephesians, because this was the epistle that Paul wrote regarding the church, what a church is to be, what a church is, and what a Christian is in terms of their relationship with Christ. So it's pretty much Christianity and churchianity 101. And so there's many wonderful lessons to, to learn and to apply to our own personal lives and also to our new, new church. So this is foundational. We left off in chapter 3 last week. So go ahead and turn to chapter 3. Uh, last week we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And Paul had changed the discussion. The first part of, uh, actually chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 was Paul was emphasizing personal individual salvation that every person can have by virtue of a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord. And then he changed his discussion in the middle of chapter 2 where he began talking about our corporate salvation. Um, There are no Lone Ranger Christians, but we are saved within a community of people. When you get saved, you're not just a Christian hanging out there by yourself, but you become a part of God's family. And families have to learn to get along, don't they? Yeah, they do. And it's a lifelong process, isn't it? Amen. I should be hearing amens to all this. And it is hard work, isn't it? Amen, brother. You ain't kidding, sister. But anyway, so that's what Paul's talking about, starting at the middle of chapter 2 of Ephesians, all the way through chapter 3, he's going to talk about our corporate identity, how we fit into the body of Christ, how we function as a member of his family, very specifically, and he's doing this on theological grounds first, before he gets to the practical implications of that in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So then in chapter 3, Paul gets real personal, talked about that last week, verses 1 through 6, where he's talking about his responsibility as a called apostle to communicate to the saints, to the Christians of his day and the Christians of all ages, God's plan for this new thing called the church, because God was not dealing with just the nation of Israel anymore like he was in the Old Testament. God has broadened his scope in terms of his dealings with people, and he's doing it now on a grand scale, not just the nation of Israel, but all people, one individual at a time. And Paul revealed or disclosed in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that God has revealed to the Apostle Paul this great mystery, a new truth, a truth that wasn't talked about, mentioned, heard of, indicated at all in the Old Testament, but God has revealed in the New Testament, and it's the mystery or this new knowledge regarding the church, the new man, the body of Christ. So Paul's been talking, and Paul called it a mystery. This is new information, and God dispensed it through the apostles, uh, this idea about this church. In other words, that a Gentile, in order to get saved and be right with God, in the Old Testament, a Gentile had to become a Jew first, had to abide by the Jewish laws. If he was a male, he had to get circumcised. So you had to become a Jew to get right with God. In the new order of things, since the coming of Christ and his resurrection, to get right with God, anybody, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you could get right with God on an individual basis in a new way, and it was through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and a Gentile didn't have to become a Jew first anymore. They could come directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, and when they got saved, they were added to this new community of believers called the church. So Paul posits that the church did not exist in the Old Testament. It's a new reality, the new people of God. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, of all ages. We are all one family in the body of Christ by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection and our belief and commitment to him. So that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the church. So we're going to pick up the rest of his discussion there. He's about to pray for the Ephesians. Look at verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. 
for this reason, the reason that he just gave about the church, this new man, this new identity, this new great thing. That, by the way, the believers in Ephesus, they were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. So he spent all of chapter 2 reminding them, you used to be excluded uh, from the community of Israel. Now you are a part of God's community through the church. So this is something to rejoice in, Gentiles. You can be equal people with God. And he's about to pray on their behalf because of this great new truth. And so he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then look at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He's about to pray for them. But uh, between verses 1 and verse 14, he stops before he prays. It's like he forgot to say something he wanted to say. And so in verses 2 through 13, he picks up this a further elaboration of this new great truth, the mystery regarding the church. So that's what he's talking about. The mystery of the church. He uses that word, mystery. We talked about it last week. Verse 3, the mystery. Verse 5, the mystery. And verse 9, the mystery. It's regarding the nature and the reality of the church. Right now we're going to pick up in the second part of his discussion where we left off last week, starting verses 7 through 13. Follow along as I read verses 7 through 13 as Paul is talking about the church, the fact that he's an apostle and minister of the church, And this great truth has been revealed. Regarding the church, verse 7, he says, Of which I was made a minister. I was made a servant of the church. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of God's power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God. Who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now, regarding this passage and these truths, with respect to the church, I just wanted to glean five truths that are real practical for us that we can apply to our own lives and our own local church here in light of these truths that Paul has given us. And there's the five there on your handout there. And I titled this, Heavenly Privileges of the Earthly Church, because that's really what Paul's talking about here. Paul's saying, if you are a part of the church because of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then you have tremendous privileges as a church. You have tremendous privileges in Christ as an individual Christian. And here's a few bullet points or a few highlights of what some of these privileges are if you are a part of the church. And you become a part of the church the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross and got punished by God the Father for your sins. And if you believe that he rose again from the dead three days later and ascended into heaven, if you ask him to come into your life and to forgive you of your sin, that's how you become a Christian. And the moment you believe that and put your faith in Christ, that is the moment you become a Christian and are added to the church. So the day you got saved is the the day you got added to the family of God. It's the day you became a member in time of the church. And so since you became a member of the church, if you are a Christian, then here's some great privileges that you have. I just listed five. So let's go ahead and look at five of these wonderful privileges that every Christian has by virtue of their relationship to the church. It's kind of like talking to somebody whose dad was the king of a nation. You were in his family, which meant you were what? You were royalty. You had special rights and privileges by virtue of your relationship with the dad or the head or the king of your family. It's the same in the church. If you're a Christian, who's your father? Almighty God. Who's your savior? The Lord Jesus Christ, king of kings. And if you know Jesus Christ personally, then we have 
amazing, wonderful privileges by virtue of being a part of his church. Let's look at some of those privileges. Number one, in verse 7, God gives gifts of service and enabling power to those in the church. That's what Paul is emphasizing here in verse 7. He referred to himself as an apostle, which might seem quite prestigious, but Paul didn't think he was so prestigious. He had a very humble, legitimate perspective of himself as a sinner. Paul didn't just see himself as an apostle. Look at verse 7. Of which I was made a minister. I was made a minister. God made me a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. One thing Paul's emphasizing here is that he was charged with the service of serving the church, and he uses the word minister. The word minister in verse 7 is where we, it's literally diakonos. It's where we get the word for deacon, a New Testament deacon. And in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, everybody knew what a deacon was. A deacon was a busboy. A deacon was a menial servant. A deacon was not a title of prestige or honor or whatsoever at all. It was somebody who was a lowly servant. That's what a diakonos or a minister was. So Paul is not putting himself on a marble pedestal to be awed by all. He's saying, no, you know what? When it comes down to reality, God has called me to make me a minister or a servant or a busboy of the church and every Christian. That's what I am. You know what? That is the distinctive of Christian leadership, according to the Bible. Christian and biblical leadership, first and foremost, is selfless service. That's what biblical leadership is. If you want to be a leader in the church, that means you want to be a servant in the church. Because Jesus is the model, isn't he? He was the exemplary leader in the church. But Jesus did not come to be served. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he called all those to follow him as leaders in the church to do the same, to do likewise, to be foot washers. Foot washing is very dirty work, isn't it? It's dirty, it's smelly, it's messy, it's ugly. That's a leader in the church. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what he's talking about. That's the terminology he's using of himself. Of which I was made a minister. I was made a deacon. I was made a servant. I was made a busboy in his church. And I put there, God gives gifts of service. God gave Paul the gift of being a a servant in the church. The Apostle Paul, he was a leader in the church, yes, but he didn't earn the right to be a leader in the church. Uh, nobody stood around and voted for Paul to be a leader in the church. Paul didn't earn the right to be a leader in the church. God gave him the gift to be a leader in the church. So serving as a leader in the church is not something that we can earn. It is something that God dispenses and God freely gives. Paul calls it a gift in verse 7, and that's what it is. Very important, important to keep that in mind. That is what a servant in the church is. It is a gift from God. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. None of us does. But it's something that God calls us to. And not only does God call us to serve in the church, God also enables and gives us power to fulfill our role of service in the church. That's how gracious God is. God doesn't just give you a gift and say, good luck, you're on your own. God gives every single Christian a gift, and then he empowers them through the Holy Spirit to actually fulfill, dispense, That gift that he's given them to the maximum capacity, that's his desire. That's what he wants. This is a good reminder for all of us. Think about what is your gift in your mind. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Do you know your calling in the church? Do you know what God wants you to do? If you can answer that question, that's a good thing. Next question is, are you doing it? If you are doing it, that's a good thing. Question number three, this is the hard one. Whose power are you fulfilling and serving that gift? Whose power? Are you depending upon your own power, your own strength, your own wisdom, your own four cups of coffee and caffeine? 
Or are you depending upon God's strength, the indwelling Holy Spirit? Most importantly, are you depending upon prayer, dependent upon God, asking Him to be using you the way He wants to use you in His church? Because we're called to serve by God as a gift, but we also, He also gives us the requisite power to fulfill that mandate He's given us. Because He's a gracious God. He gives us the resources we need to fulfill the task. So as a Christian, if you've got a gift, you shouldn't be saying, Oh, I can't do it. Yeah, you can. You can do it by the enabling power of Almighty God. That's what the Apostle Paul said. God gave him the gift as an apostle, as a teacher, as a prophet, as a servant in the church. And in verse 7, he says, according to uh, the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. God's power. The Greek word dunamis, dynamite. God has given every Christian supernatural dynamite-like power to fulfill the calling that God has given them in the church. That is an awesome truth, an awesome reality, and a great privilege. Speaking of leadership... The Apostle Paul knew that to be a leadership, first and foremost, was to be a servant in the church. Not a master, not a lord, not a boss, not a demagogue, not manipulating the sheep, not looking down his nose upon them as though they didn't know anything. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, if you've got your Bible there, because this is one of the most specific and best verses for leaders in the church. And what their attitude should be towards the sheep as they lead God's church. By the way, it's not their church. It's Jesus' church, right? So look at Peter talking to the leaders of the churches of his day, reminding them of what it means to be a true leader in the church. If you're a leader, you're a servant. Servant of who? A servant of the sheep, a servant of the people, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant of the church. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. That is the ordained leadership in the local church, the elders. Some churches have deacons instead of elders. Same thing. Therefore, I exhort, I command, this is from the apostle Peter, I exhort the elders among you who are in your church. As as a fellow elder, Peter was an elder, a leader in his church. And witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that would be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. That's a command. Elders are supposed to shepherd. Leaders are supposed to shepherd. Shepherd who? The sheep. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily as God has called them, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain. You're not doing it for money, power, prestige, but with eagerness. Verse 3, here's the key. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. You're not supposed to take your authority, abuse it, and lord it over the sheep and lord it over to the saints. Like, you know, power corrupts so easily for people, doesn't it? You get in a position of authority and it's easy to abuse that power. Peter says, don't do that. If you're a leader, you're not to lord it over your people. You're supposed to serve your people with humility. Paul was an excellent example of that. He was a servant of his people. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3. Don't lord it over the sheep. So that's number one. God gives the gifts of service and enabling power to those in the church, and that includes every single one of us. Number two, God works through those who are not worthy in the church. I remember the first time I was challenged by an elder at a church, a local church, and I was a relatively new Christian. They called me on the phone. And they said, I would like you to take this leadership position in our church. It was not a paid position. It was a part-time lay servant position, but it was a leadership position. And it was over um, young children, but I was scared to death when he said that. And the main thing, and first thing that crossed my mind is I am not qualified. I am not worthy. I am, man, if you knew what I was really about and everything that happened in my life, you wouldn't ask me to be doing this. And he basically rebuked me on the phone. Are you a Christian? 
Yes. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Have you been forgiven of all your sin? Yes. Are you a part of a local church? Yes. Are you a member of our church? Yes. Did God give you a gift, do you think, possibly? Yes. Are you using your gift? No. Then you're disobedient. Here's an opportunity for you to use your gift. I've seen you work with children. I think you have the gift. Here's what I want you to do. It has nothing to do with whether you are worthy or not. None of us are worthy. I'll never forget that. That was almost 20 years ago. That changed my whole attitude about ministry forever. You know what? He's right. I'm not worthy. But I need to be obedient. None of us are worthy. The Apostle Paul knew that more than anybody, that he wasn't worthy. And that's what he talks about in Ephesians 3. The next point. Even though Paul wasn't worthy to be in ministry, God used him as a leader in the ministry. And as an apostle and as a prophet. And to write 13 books of the Bible and to reveal the greatest of all truths and the greatest of all mysteries to the church, even though Paul was not worthy. So look at verse 8. Paul says, I'm not worthy to be a minister of the church. To me, just Paul, I don't, as a matter of fact, I'm the very least of all the saints. Really? All the other saints are more important than I am in light of who I am and my history and what I have done. Paul's talking about a very specific background that he had. He was a shady character. Actually, he was a scary guy. Because the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, his name was Saul. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians so much, he led crusades to chase down Christians all over the land of Israel, to arrest them, to rip them out of their homes, to rip women away from their children in their homes, to put them in the stockades, to beat them, uh, to put them into prison, and to prove their execution. He gives testimony of that in Acts chapter 27, 1 Timothy, several places. He called himself, he was a persecutor of the church, ravaging the church. He uses the word hostile towards Christians. He was wicked, he was vicious, he was a murderer of Christians. You can't get anybody worse than that. Somebody who hates and kills Christians? Well, God invaded his life, confronted him, saved him of his sin, changed his heart, and then used him as a servant of the church. As a result, none of us can say, well, we're not worthy to serve in the church. We're not worthy to use our gift. That's not true. God used the Apostle Paul, and he is the least of all saints. He is the least qualified of any Christian that ever lived to serve in the church. So every person in this room that is a Christian is more qualified than the Apostle Paul to serve somewhere in the church. Isn't that exciting? That is amazing. That's what Paul says. Verse 8, To me, the very least of all saints, that this grace was given through salvation to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul can't even believe, being an ex-murderer of Christians, that God had called him and given them this great high calling of witnessing and sharing the gospel and preaching. Being a formal representative of the church. The Apostle Paul, one thing I appreciate about him is his humility. His legitimate diagnosis of himself as a sinner before God. You know, as Paul got older, he got more and more humble, more and more mature, and faced reality more and more of who he was. There's kind of an interesting, if you trace a couple of verses, 1 Corinthians, you don't have to go there, but just listen. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians was one of the first epistles or letters that Paul ever wrote. And he made this statement about himself in 1 Corinthians 15.9. He called himself the least of the apostles. Well, that's pretty humble. The 12 big shots in the church, and then, you know, I came on, I was number 13. Yeah, I'm the least of them. I don't start, I sit on the bench, and I come in eventually when the score gets run up or whatever else. So I'm number 13. But it's of the apostles, okay? And here's the apostles, and here's all the rest of us second-class Christians, right? So he's still up there. Well, later on in his life, he writes Ephesians 3, this passage right here. He changed his perspective about himself. He's not just the least of the apostles anymore in verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints. I am the least of all the Christians. So all of a sudden, that takes Paul from up here where the apostles were down at the bottom list of all Christians. 
That's amazing. That is a growth in humility in Paul's part. He realized who he was. Man, I'm just a vessel for God to use. There's nothing good in and of myself. Nothing whatsoever. The least of all saints. And then at the end of his life when he was about to be executed, one of the last letters that he wrote, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you have your Bible, I want you to go there because he says several amazing things about himself. Quite revealing about showing how he grew in spiritual maturity Properly diagnosing his true standing before God. He wasn't a hotshot. He wasn't made of bronze. He wasn't a saint made of marble. He was a lowly, sinful person who got saved by Jesus' grace. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, listen to what he says at the end of his life, just before he died about himself. Starting at verse 12 in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who who has strengthened me Because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church and a violent aggressor. This was an evil man. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which was found in Christ Jesus. And here's the key, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Not only am I the least of the apostles and the least of the saints, I am the worst sinner that ever existed. That is true spiritual maturity. As Paul grew, this is over the course of 15, 20 years in Paul's life as an apostle. That is amazing. An amazing assessment of himself. That is one of the marks of true spiritual maturity as we grow in life as God through the Holy Spirit reveals our own sin in our face and we're willing to own up to it. Admitting to our own weaknesses, our own idiosyncrasies, our own compromises in light of God's perfection and great glory. So, going back to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is just a wonderful model to remind us that God works through those who are not worthy in the church. None of us are. All God requires is faithfulness and obedience. And He will use us mightily. Awesome, great truth. Number three. God displays his mysteries through the church, Paul tells us. We're a church, Grace Bible Fellowship. That is God's design. In the New Testament, there's different references to the church. There's the universal church. That's all believers of all time since the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are a part of the the universal church, and that's throughout all the ages. But then there's more references even to the local assembly, the local churches the little satellites of God's churches all over the world. So we are one of those satellites of a church, a formal church, Grace Bible Fellowship, that represents the Lord Jesus Christ here on this earth. And we have the wonderful responsibility as a corporate group of people being a local church, a local, local assembly, to display God's mystery through the church. That's what Paul's talking about in, in verses 2 through 13. He's talking about one of these mysteries. Last week I mentioned that the Apostle Paul was entrusted with several mysteries, new information, to give to all saints of all time, and he wrote them down in the New Testament. And we mentioned those. The greatest of the mysteries that Paul gave of new truth was the mystery of the church, that Jews and Gentiles can now be united as one equal body because of what Christ has done. That is the greatest mystery that the Apostle Paul and the Apostles revealed to all people for all time, particularly to Christians. And now that we exist as a corporate entity, God expects us 
to witness to the rest of the world these mysteries that God has given, because God wants the whole world to know these mysteries, these spiritual truths that God has entrusted to us. One of the greatest mysteries is the mystery of the church. We're going to talk about that a little more. But look at chapter 3, verse 3. Just by way of reminder, uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse 3 from last week that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. It was by revelation. The Lord Jesus Christ talked to the Apostle Paul personally, literally, face-to-face, and through visions as an apostle. And that's how Jesus dispensed these mysteries to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul has written these down for us, and so now we can know these mysteries and dispense them to other people. This great truth about the church. That God will take any person, male or female, regardless of your ethnic background. And he loves you. God created you in his image. He wants you to know him personally. He wants you to repent of your sin so you can come to know Jesus Christ personally and be a part of his family, the church, the body of Jesus Christ. That's a great mystery, the greatest mystery in the universe. We're responsible for dispensing that information. And just by way of reminder, look at verse 5, chapter 3. This truth about the church, this mystery about the church in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. This is a new truth. It wasn't mentioned in the Old Testament. Some people think it was. It wasn't. It wasn't even hinted at as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles, the apostle Paul. A great truth, the greatest of the truths of all of mysteries was this idea of the church. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever heard of the word dispensation, but I put that on the back of your notes. What is a dispensationalist? Some people would say, well, some guy made that up in the 1800s. Well, not really, because the word dispensation is in the Bible. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Depending upon your translation, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship or administration, the King James says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of God's grace that was given to the Apostle Paul. That's where we get the word dispensationalist. It's right in the Bible. And it's used again in verse 9. Look at verse 9 of your Bible in Ephesians 3, verse 9. And bring to light what is the administration or the stewardship. King James says the fellowship. That's a horrible translation. It's not fellowship. Actually, the word in verse 9, administration, is the exact same word used in verse 2 in the New American Standard, which says stewardship. It's the same word, exactly. So they should have translated the same way. But several translations didn't. But the Greek word is oikonomia, oikonomia, economy. That's where we get our word economy from. And basically, in the New Testament, the Greek word here that Paul's talking about, this dispensation, this economy, this administration, in his days, everybody knew that meant a stewardship responsibility. The, the Apostle Paul was given a stewardship responsibility of truth that God gave him, truth regarding the church. The Apostle Paul was supposed to be a faithful steward of this mystery, this great truth, that he was supposed to tell everybody, write it down faithfully, write it down accurately, and every Christian throughout all history was supposed to be a faithful steward of that uh, truth as well regarding the church. That is dispensationalism. We are called to be faithful stewards regarding this body of truth, regarding the doctrine of the church. And if you believe that the church is a new creation, a new man, a new body, a new entity, a new group of believing saints since the time of Christ and his resurrection, and it wasn't talked about or referred to or alluded to or predicted in the Old Testament or even hinted at, then that makes you a dispensationalist, theologically speaking. So hopefully that cleared up some things because that can be quite confusing. But that's uh, just a simple definition of what a dispensationalist is. It's your view regarding the church. But anyway, God displays his mysteries, particularly this idea of Jew and Gentile being one through the church. Let's go on to number four. Great privilege that the church has. God teaches the angels through the unity of the church. God teaches the angels. Did you know that the angels don't know everything? Angels are not omniscient. That means they don't know everything. They are created beings. They are finite. 
They're finite physically, they're finite in all ways, and they're finite in their knowledge. According to the Bible, several references, God is teaching the angels. The angels are learning some things. Good angels and bad angels are learning things. As a matter of fact, they're studying. They are scrupulous. They are very curious at learning specific truths that they don't know. Because the angels are looking down in the heavenlies, looking down from heaven, apparently, on planet Earth, watching what's going on. They've been watching for at least 6,000 years as God is dealing with sinful people. And many times, the angels apparently are scratching their wings. I was going to say scratching their heads. Scratching their whatever wings. Very curious, baffled, learning from how God interacts with human beings. And that's what one of the references here that the Apostle Paul is talking about. So let's look at it. How is it that God is teaching the angels through the unity of the church? Well, when God revealed this mystery of the church, that Jew and Gentile could be one on equal footing through Christ Jesus the Lord, not only was that a new truth revealed to Paul, the apostles, and all of humanity on planet Earth, that was also a new truth that the angels never heard of before. What? I thought you were dealing with just the nation of Israel. So the angels got an education when the truth regarding the church came around. So that's what he's talking about, this new truth. Being, uh, the angels are being educated. Look at verse 10 through 11. As he's talking about dispensing this mystery of the church to bring it to light in verse 9 that has been hidden throughout all history. Verse 10, why is God doing this? Why is God working through the church? One of the reasons is this, verse 10, in order that, for the purpose that, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So one of the reasons God created the church is because he wanted to make his wonderful wisdom known. He wants to display his wisdom to somebody. To who? To make his wisdom known through the church. So he created the church so that the church can be a channel to somebody revealing the wisdom of God. So God is using the church as a living metaphor to teach somebody something. We are his representatives. We are God's visual aid, literally. It's very important to be a visual aid. Well, who is he trying to teach? Make known through the church to the rulers and the authorities. These are not human beings. This is not referring to human kings and human leaders. Because Paul says, rulers and authorities in the heavenlies, literally. In the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1 at the beginning of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 6 refers to the heavenlies. That is the spiritual realm where angels live. Both good angels, bad angels. Good angels and demons reside, live, operate, function in the heavenlies. So God created the church, the mystery of the church, Jew and Gentile, bringing them together in a united manner into one body. And one of the specific purposes he does that so that he can show his great grace, wisdom, mercy through the entity of the church to the angels who are looking up on high in the laboratory of learning up in heaven as they're watching getting an education. That's what it says. That's what it's talking about. This is talking about angels. To rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 11, he says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was not an afterthought by God's part. By the way, the church is not an afterthought that God had when he decided, Oh, it's not working with Israel. Maybe I'll do something new. Okay, I'll create the church. It's fourth down. Oh, maybe I should punt. No. Paul says, no, the church was in the very eternal mind of God. The church was conceived in eternity past, before all things. Israel's failure has nothing to do with the existence of the church. The church was always in the mind of God and to be fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons he brought about the church, apparently, was to educate the angels. 
So the angels don't know everything. That's good to know, isn't it? Because did you know that Satan is an angel, right? You ever heard anybody ask, does Satan know everything? Answer, no, he's a created being. There's a lot he doesn't know. Is he smart and intelligent? Yeah, probably the smartest, most intelligent created being that probably ever existed. Can he read your thoughts? Probably not. But does somebody have to know your thoughts in order to tempt you to sin? Not. All he has to know is figure out human behavior, right? And he can just go from there and make mayhem for all of us. But it is good to know that Satan isn't omniscient. He has to learn just like all the other angels. Uh, just a couple of other things that I thought were interesting. Um, if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter um, chapter 1. Because here's a couple of other lessons that are being taught to the angels from heaven that God is trying to do he's, as he's teaching the angels for whatever purpose. But in chapter 1, uh, the theme there is that God, he's, God is talking about the greatness of Christian salvation through Christ Jesus the Lord, our salvation, and the details of our salvation, and when the Messiah would come to fulfill that salvation. And the Old Testament prophets were write, writing prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, wrote down a prophecy and said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And Micah, seven, 800 years before Christ was born, pre- wrote down and predicted that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. One thing that Isaiah and Micah didn't know is when the Messiah would be born. Another thing that Micah and Isaiah didn't know is they didn't realize there were going to be two comings of the Messiah. They thought everything, all 600 prophecies or whatever, would be fulfilled at the first coming. Then in the New Testament, it reveals that no, there's actually two comings of the Messiah. That also was a mystery. So that's what Peter's talking about here is the greatness of the mystery of salvation through Jesus Christ the Lord. And then in chapter 1, verse 10, Peter says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. There are some things they didn't even know regarding what they were writing down. Verse 11, particularly seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. When the Messiah was going to come, that was a mystery to Isaiah and Micah. They didn't know that. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, us Christians, in the time of Christ, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There it is. Regarding this salvation that was revealed to us in Christ Jesus the Lord, man, the prophets of old were dying to know this stuff. And right now, presently, the angels are trying to figure out this stuff regarding salvation. They're just looking down. I do not, angel, do you think about it. Good angels do not understand experientially the concept of forgiveness. Because they've never sinned. They haven't needed God's forgiveness. They don't understand God's love in Christ Jesus. They don't understand experientially grace and mercy and chastening. They can't experience any of that. Because they've been perfect all the time. Sinless. That is all a mystery to them. Then they look down at us pathetic, sinful, wicked, terrible, compromising humans. Hey, look at, oh, there's McManus. Oh, I saw that. God, did you see that? And then God says, yeah. And, but he's a Christian. And oh, by the way, he repented of his sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ already got punished for what you just saw happen. He is totally forgiven. And the angels are like, what? They cannot understand it experientially. So they're looking on, trying to learn and figure this stuff out. Another great truth that angels are learning. Then there's just one more in 1 Corinthians. This is pretty fascinating. That's 1 Corinthians 11. Where Paul's talking about head coverings. That controversial passage that nobody understands. In 1 Corinthians 11, should women wear head coverings or not, and blah, 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 and wear hats and all that good stuff. 
Well, that isn't what the chapter is about. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, it's talking about, really what it's talking about is just appropriate decorum in the church and corporate assembly. And men and women are different. Did you know that men and women are different? That's the way God designed us. Can I get an amen? Men and women are different. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing that men and women are different. Not a bad thing. I don't struggle with that concept. But that's what this chapter is about. Men and women are different. And men and women have different functions. That's a good thing too. Women have babies. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. That's what Paul's emphasizing here. You have different roles. You have different roles in life. You have different roles in your family. Men and women, you have different roles in the church. It's not that hard. And the men are to be the leaders in the church. That doesn't make women inferior at all. At all. It's just on a a football team. One guy has to be the quarterback. Is he the most important? No. Is he equal with everybody else? Yeah. Is he given direction? Yeah. He's taking signals from the coach. Somebody has to be in charge. That's all he's talking about. All that just to say. So the whole emphasis in this chapter is on uh, roles within the church, in the corporate assembly particularly, with respect to functional roles that God has given men and women. It has nothing to do with inherent worth. Women are just as valuable in the eyes of God as men. It's not even an issue. He's not even talking about that. It's just how you function harmoniously with one another in the church. And so therefore, men are to be the leaders in the church, and when there's praying and when direct prophecy is being given from heaven, and if God is going to speak through a woman as a prophet giving direct revelation, which, by the way, doesn't happen today, but it did in the New Testament times. Philip had four daughters who gave prophetic revelation from God. And Paul's saying, if a woman is getting direct revelation from God, then she should have her head covered as a sign of submission in the church. So there were female prophets giving direct revelation and as a sign of authority, recognizing that men were the conduits of leadership in the church, they were to have their head covered. Verse 10, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority, that's a covering, on her head, she's prophesying, because of the angels. That's one of the main reasons they're supposed to cover their head. It's not to not offend everybody, all the people looking on. It's because of the angels. Because the angels are up there in heaven watching. They're trying to figure out order, hierarchy, what's appropriate, God's standards. Because there's a hierarchy among angels. There are leader angels and archangels and subservient angels and servant angels and and different roles. So angels understand hierarchy, authority, and submission. That would be inconsistent for the angels to look down and say, there's no hierarchy down there. That's not fair. I want to be a human. So the angels are learning a lot of things that God is teaching them. That's awesome. So from now on, think about your own behavior. I caught myself in my behavior today thinking, oh, I wonder if an angel saw that. Woo! Probably. I'm history. Well, anyway, God teaches the angels through the unity of the church. Jews and Gentiles being one. And finally, number five privilege of the church that Paul addresses. God provides direct access through the church. God provides direct access to Almighty God through the church by virtue of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ being saved, being added to the body of Christ where you are on equal footing with every other believer that exists even all throughout the 2,000 years that the church has existed. We all now have equal access to Almighty God. That is a new reality. It is a new privilege. It is a new truth. Entrusted to the church. Going back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, in whom we, Christians, believers, we have boldness and confident access. Actually, it should be we have bold access and we have confident access. 
Access to what? To God through faith in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, you have direct access to Almighty God, the creator of the universe now. That is a great truth. didn't exist in the Old Testament the way that it does today. Think about it. In the Old Testament, in order to have direct access to God, here's what you had to do. First of all, you had to be a part of the nation of Israel. If you were, a, if you were a Gentile, you were set up, you were apart from God. So you had to be a part of the community of Israel. You had to take on Israel's laws to have direct access. You had to be a part of Israel's priesthood to have direct access to God. You had to be a part of the tribe of Levi to have access to God. You had to be a descendant of Aaron of the tribe of Levi to have access to God. You had to be of the family of Kohath of the descendant of Aaron of the descendant of Levi to have direct access to God. You had to be a qualified male to have the privilege of ever having direct access to God. Not only did you have to be a qualified male, you had to be the high priest. And there could only be one high priest at a time that could have direct access to God. And you had to be a qualified male high priest doing the activity in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, to have direct access to God. That seems rather cumbersome, doesn't it? Well, it was. It was a hassle. It was a major ordeal. Now, when Christ died and rose again from the dead, the veil of the tabernacle was rent or torn, symbolizing that every person that believes in Jesus Christ now, through a relationship with Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us, gives us now direct access to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and to Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. Every Christian now has direct access to God and He is only a prayer away. Isn't that an awesome truth? Absolutely awesome truth. And in closing, let's look at Hebrews 4 as the author of Hebrews expands on this great truth that every Christian has direct, immediate, confident, bold. That's not cocky access. It is confident access. We don't have to be afraid and intrepid of an abusive father. Confident. It's like Rustin pulling on my leg 97 times. Daddy, can I have a cookie? 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 He is not going to relent until I say, yes, you can have a cookie. Have the whole box. That's, that's what happens at our house. That is confident, bold access. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. starting at verse 14 through verse 16. Since then we, that's every Christian, since then we have a great high priest. The high priest also has direct access to God. That's Jesus. High priest who cannot, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, I'm sorry, back to verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all manner that we have been tempted, yet he did it without sin. Jesus has never sinned. He is the perfect high priest always available for us that we have access to, to get to the Father. Verse 16, Let us therefore draw near to God Almighty with confidence to the throne of grace. That's what I need when I get to God's room, isn't it? I need grace. I need help to the throne of grace, in order that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. What an awesome truth. Thank God for the church. Thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly shed His blood to create the church and that every individual can be a part of the church by virtue of their personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, bow your head with me as we go directly to Almighty God, the creator of the universe, by virtue of our relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the great sinless high priest. Dear Father, we thank you 
for the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we give him all the glory and praise. We thank you that he willingly came down here, lived a perfect life, willingly got punished on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, conquered sin, death, the world, Satan on our behalf, and paved a way back to heaven, to the Holy of Holies in heaven, to Almighty God the Father, so that we can talk to the Father any time that we need him. God, we just thank you for that great truth. God, make it, may we take advantage of that great truth this week in our prayer life, talking to you all times as we need your grace, we need your help, we need you, your mercy to live this life. We commit it to you. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.